You are listening to the Abra Money 3.0 show, your guide to the future of all things money. In this episode, Abra founder and CEO Bill Barheit is in conversation with Ryan Selkis, the founder and CEO of Masari. Their conversation is a deeper dive into the crypto thesis for 2020 paper that Masari recently published. Some of the topics include the Bitcoin as digital gold narrative, unbanking the banked, the future of crypto on ramps, tokenized income share agreements, and Masari's plans to create a decentralized autonomous organization. Before jumping in, remember, the information presented in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be used or construed as an offer to sell or solicitation of an offer to buy any of the financial assets discussed. Any opinions expressed herein are subject to change. Neither Abra nor any other participants in this podcast make any representation as to the suitability or appropriateness of these financial assets for individual investors. And with that out of the way, on to the show. Welcome to Abra Money 3.0. Uh, Bill Barheit here from Abra, and I'm thrilled that Ryan Selkis from Masari is uh, here with me uh, in the virtual Money 3.0 studio today. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks for having me, Bill. Hey, my Thank pleasure, you. man. Uh, you and I go way back in in, uh, in crypto uh, time, uh, probably going on five years now, I, I think. Um, I so many things I want to talk to you about today, uh, all kind of the macroeconomic stuff going on, events that might relate to the broader crypto sphere. Uh, had a chance to read your fantastic crypto thesis for 2020 document, which people, if people haven't read, they should definitely go to your website and download. Uh, I assume it's there for download. I, I got it through your email. Uh, questions about that. And, um, you know, also want to hear, I, I heard some rumblings about uh, potentially some type of DAO related announcements uh, out of Mistari. I'm not sure what you can say there, but definitely want to understand what's going on there. Um, and my guess is, is by the time we're, we're done with all that, there's 10 or 20 things we'll, we'll manage to sneak in and probably have to unpack a, a few different recursive conversations here. So let's get into it. So, so let's say Iran, China, any of this going to move the needle for Bitcoin, um, smart contracts, stable coins? I mean, anything that you're excited about in there as it relates to the broader crypto macro environment? Well, I think if you look at any of these narratives in a vacuum, it, it seems like on any given day, it's going to make or break Bitcoin and, and crypto in general. And and the truth, of course, always lies somewhere in between. Um, I thought it was interesting that you could basically trace a line to Bitcoin and gold throughout the 72 hours or so that most of the drama in Iran was uh, was taking place. And, and it certainly seemed like Bitcoin was serving as a very temporary flight to safety, um, which is not something we've seen before. And, and right. I think the important thing there was uh, it was geopolitical inspired. Um, so, you know, I, I do think that there may be a difference at this point when it comes to macro events between the geopolitical and then just the economic, right? So you, you tend to see Bitcoin trade as a risk on asset where if the stock market is doing well, Bitcoin's you know doing well. And really we haven't seen any exceptions to that because we've been in a, you know, 11 year bull market, ironically. Um, so uh, the, the only real signal that I think you've been able to get historically out of, out of Bitcoin is how it reacts to, um, geopolitical news and, and regulatory news. Um, and that's why every time that there's a rumored announcement and an actual announcement out of China, the, the price moves pretty significantly. And, um, you know, we've seen this as far back as 2011 with with the Cyprus bank bail-ins. Um, you know, Bitcoin does react to those type of events. But how much of it is like other people betting that that's going to move the needle uh, versus it actually being a flight to safety? 
I bet on the former versus the latter. And I, I think you and I kind of share this opinion when it comes to the having, which is different, but uh, it goes to this concept of, of virtuous and vicious cycles that, that impact these monetary assets. Yep. Yep. So, so I, I, one way to, uh, let's just get right into it. Right. So, so I, I look at kind of the long-term bull trend that we're still in on Bitcoin. If you look at it from a prop trading perspective and completely correlated with the fact that we're in the midst of one of the longest bull runs in U.S. market history. And I wonder what would happen to that bull run if basically we entered into a five-year sideways down cycle, which a lot of people who are in Bitcoin have never experienced in their life because this started when you know they were 17 or 18, and now in their, in their late 20s and basically only know uh, a, a big bull market, which is what I went through when I was at Netscape in the 90s, where a lot of people who were going through the dot-com days had never experienced a downturn, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know, if, do, you, do you think that they're that correlated where uh, a, a huge stock market downturn basically puts, puts Bitcoin even further in the doldrums? I think that's certainly a possibility. I mean, you know, who knows, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm just some guy off the street, same as same as you, right? Well, it's not like we're going to prognosticate on on you know what the future of, of the global market uh, really uh, really does. Much less, you know, maybe we can opine on some of the edges around Bitcoin and certain crypto assets. But um, you know, I, I think many people that are are into crypto have already, in some respect, made a long term macro bet that we may never see another recession until like the big one, right? Like the inflationary recession, because um, it doesn't seem like there's any willingness to taper spending at any of the Western, you know, major Western economies or in general, really. Um, and ultimately, as long as you keep printing money and stimulating the economy that way, it, it's it's got to kind of, it seems like it's kind of going to work until it doesn't. Right. Um, and that was, at least for me, I mean, that was the the general trend that got me into Bitcoin in the first place, right? This is 2011 around the debt sequester. I heard of it. Um, but, you know, at that point, it wasn't really easy to acquire. So I kind of wrote it off and right. bought gold, shorted the treasury ETF and didn't buy Bitcoin. So I was right on the thesis, but was like 0 for 3 uh, on a massive scale. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it wasn't until 2013 that, you know, kind of corrected it. But I think everybody, you know, whether it's 2011, 2013, like this year, that's still that whole narrative um, is the driving force behind the entire industry, even mm -hmm. though it's very Bitcoin centric. And yep. so maybe you and I will disagree a little bit on uh, Bitcoin as digital gold versus peer to peer cash and the value therein. Um, but uh, but I, I certainly think that's the the one that sticks and the one that resonates the most closely with people as as the macro yep. sticks get bigger. Yeah. By the way, I have no qualms with Bitcoin as digital gold. Uh, I think that's what people have decided it is. That's what the the more importantly the developers that spend their hard valuable hours working on it have decided. Uh, I just don't see any visibility into any kind of kind of sovereign free P two P based version of that getting any traction anytime soon. And that's disappointing to me. Um, and, and there's myriad reasons for that, which we could, you know, spend hours on, but as digital gold, I think it's great. I think, you know, I'm, I'm long personally long Bitcoin and I have no intention of going, you know, anything but long Bitcoin, um, in that regard. Uh, but you know, it, it is what it is at this point. Right. So there's no point in, in uh, pontificating further on that. But so, so one of the things I'd like to talk about is you, you basically published as part of your document, these uh, top 10 narratives for mm -hmm. 
Bitcoin. I could spend an hour on each one, but let's let's pick a couple at random and talk about the narratives and 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 what they mean uh, and and why why you included them uh, in the list. So I'm going to pick a couple at random here. Let's start with um, the revolution needs rules, and I think here you you uh, looked at. Um, uh, another exchange's uh, advertising campaign uh, around, uh, you know, the revolution needs rules. What, what was, why, why are you, were you so bullish on that campaign? Uh, last year when it came out, it was very controversial, right? It was against the, the crypto anarchist ethos of, of, of Bitcoin and the early adopter crowd. Uh, and this came out of Gemini, um, who was really orienting a campaign towards institutional investors as, as you know, Gemini being the best regulated, you know, most tightly run institutional grade platform for acquiring these assets. Um, so, you know, they're, they're talking their own book, right? But I think as times passed, uh, I, I have gotten to be a bigger believer in that narrative because this year we had a bunch of milestones. Uh, you know, President Xi is talking about blockchain. Trump is tweeting how he doesn't like Bitcoin. The you know the, the the treasury and the, the Fed and and you know the IMF and you know major European leaders, both you know geo uh, at the at the government and kind of regulatory level, they're they're um, they're all starting to recognize that the genie's out of the bottle when it comes to this tech and, and some of these assets. So uh, it's it's high time that the people that are are the biggest proponents uh, of these technologies and these assets. Um, get our collective shit together uh, and come up with some common sense, better form uh, of self-regulation than what currently exists today. Because otherwise, it's just going to be top down, and you're going to get more, you know, disastrous, you know, regulatory schemes like the Bit License that um, basically hurt everybody involved in that given jurisdiction. Yeah. And we're already seeing some of the the penalties in New York State and the U.S. more broadly um, to to some of this uncertainty plus you know, overreach on the regulatory front. Yep. Yep. I agree with that part. I, I actually, to some degree, I mean, it's almost like it's inevitable regardless of, of self-regulation, right? I mean, I feel like whatever California is going to do, California is going to do in a vacuum, regardless of what industry tells you that they're going to do on their own. Um, it sounds like you may feel like that that's not necessarily inevitable. Is that, is that true? Well, if the revolution is to be successful, the revolution itself needs rules. Otherwise, you know, the the, the monarch just will continue to to set the standards and, and and tell us what to do, and we can go back and play in the sandbox. Uh, but it's not really going to offer any meaningful improvements over the, the legacy financial system because you're going to be, you know, burdened by um, forty year outdated standards that you know really apply to a much different world and and never even would have conceived of the idea of a, a third uh, ledger to universalize, you know, all the other record keeping systems that, um, that, that, you know, they used to take for granted and, and we take for granted now. But um, I, you know, I, I, I just generally think that um, there's a, there's been a, a historical bias to, to encourage or promote safe harbors, you know, fight for safe harbors or, you know, laissez-faire type uh, regulatory structures and in reality, the, the same people that have been pushing for that are, you know, very often the ones that raised, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars and then, you know, spent it on, you know, uh, yachts and, and, you know, Caribbean islands and uh, all, all types of 
bullshit that uh, that any regulator is going to look at and they're going to say, well, yeah. you know, this is this is why we can't have nice things, right? You're, right, right. you're looking at us like we're the bad guys, and, and yeah. you know, you're acting like this. You know, what do you expect? Yep. Yeah. Totally. So, I, I mean, time will tell. Uh, I think it's going to be a combination of both things. Um, you know, rules for revolutionaries. We'll see. Um, I I I don't want to just be the pessimist, but I do think to a certain degree larger states and actors are going to do what they're going to do, but it certainly behooves us to do the right thing regardless, whatever the right thing might be. And and, uh, and by, when I say us, I mean anybody who's got a stake because um, it's going to mean different things to different people. Um, okay, so let's talk about this uh, thesis around unbanked the un, or I, I think you wrote unbanked the banked. Now, mm -hmm. I, I chose this one because uh, just reading here, two things. One, you mentioned Wences Cesaris, who I love, and LSD, which... No comments, but you know, if you mention LSD, I got it. You also love. So uh, I didn't say that, uh, but anyway, so uh, you wrote uh, "unbanked the bank." I unbanked the banked. I love this quip, is what you wrote. So, so what do you mean by "unbank the banked"? Well, it, it's a you know reversal of the meme, you know, "bank the unbanked," which I think kind of hit its nadir uh, when Mark Zuckerberg was uh, promoting all of the good things that Libra was going to do for the unbanked of the world and, and, you know, positioning, you know, Facebook as this, you know, white knight, um, fintech savior, uh, for, you know, hundreds of millions of their existing users. And, and, you know, no one really bought that narrative when he spun it. Uh, mm -hmm. and I think more and more, uh, it's not really something that's a, a primary focus for the Bitcoin community uh, in general. You're st you, you do see some pockets uh, of, of the crypto community that are still working on this um, application set for you know, that end user base. But by and large, I think people recognize that like the Elon Musk model of selling a Roadster before you get to you know, the Model 3 is probably the way that you need to go uh, as you're getting people to adopt this technology. Um, and that really means that you need wealthy people to uh, be able to take their money out of the financial systems that they're used to, um, and use the digital the digital gold use case, so they can take their you know the, the clothes on their back and whatever in a uh, brain wallet uh, and mnemonic and and flee whatever jurisdiction they're in if if that's um, what they intend to do. Now this opens up some uh, some pretty sticky situations that'll be bad from a uh, an optic standpoint when they inevitably arise, right? Some plutocrat is going to escape from, you know, Russia or the Ukraine and, you know, uh, try to, you know, get asylum in Ecuador uh, and, and they're going to have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of Bitcoin that they absconded with uh, or it's going to happen in China or, you know, really any choice. I think we had a Japanese auto exec make his way to, I don't even remember, somewhere in the Middle East over the weekend. Yeah, right? yeah. Go, Gosen just went to, to Lebanon, escaped Lebanon, like right, yeah. a, a meat locker or whatever it was. Now, imagine if he had taken all of his assets and, and they were stored in Bitcoin and he just- How, you know, how do you know he didn't? I mean, probably no, did. Maybe he did, but as long as it didn't make the news, I think that's a, a net positive. That's what we've devolved to. The fact that, that that didn't happen, at least from a news perspective, is, is actually a good thing for crypto. Yeah, exactly. I think the- um, that use case, though, it, it's important, right? And, and it's the digital gold. Um, it's like the tr true gold bug, bug, like doomsday prepper type mindset, mm -hmm. I think, um, to have a little bit of this, you know, electronic gold slash cash that might be volatile, but at least it's transportable if things really hit the fan, you know, short of Mad Max, right? Like things hit the fan and you just emigrate to another country. How do you do that? Um, 
I think you know that that's that's pretty powerful, especially given uh, the the negative interest rate environment that we have on a worldwide scale, and, and the fact that no one really knows who's going to be impacted the worst um, by whatever the next recession is, right? Whether it's the big one or just another, you know, major global downturn, um, there will be another recession at some point because there mm-hmm. always is. Um, that's when uh, you know, coming back to the earlier conversation thread, we'll, we'll see exactly how Bitcoin is working and whether it's uh, just a, a true speculative bubble that's going to go back into a five, 10 year winter, or um, if it's got staying power, is this uh, inflationary recession resistance um, asset? So this is where I think you and I have our money. If, if, if you start, what you're, what you're kind of implying earlier, what you said is you have to start at the top of the income pyramid and almost like it's becomes like schmuck insurance to say, if, if, if things really go South, then the top 1% of income earners globally, which is about 70 million people, uh, should be doing this. How, how does that, how does that happen? Because, um, if 70 million people tried to do what we were just joking about ghosts and doing, that wouldn't be possible today. Uh, and, and so, you know, of course, not. yeah. So, but, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't happen all at once, right? So. so that's only 1%. And that's, that's potentially, like you said, that's the Uber rich who, um, where we should probably market this to at the beginning as some type of, you know, doomsday or schmuck insurance, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, I mean, is that, is that even possible? Right. So I, obviously one motivated person can do a lot, but can 70 million motivated people actually do a lot? I mean, I, I think of it a little bit differently. I just kind of view it as inevitable um, based on, it's just a function of time, right? And and the example that I used, uh, I may have wrote this in the thesis. Uh, I don't remember. I blacked out when I wrote it. So, um, and and tried to forget about it after, you know, uh, the, the one week mad dash. But I, I compared it to um, like when I was in college, seeing all the MacBooks on campus, Um and, you know, the first year, maybe it was like 10% or 5% of, of you know, people had a Mac versus a, a Dell computer. And then sophomore year, it doubled. And then, you know, junior year, it seemed like it doubled again. And, and, and this, this kept going on. And, you know, my grandfather is not tech savvy at all, but I told him that and he bought some Apple. And that ended up being a very, very good investment in, yep, yep. in 2008, 2009, right? Um, and I kind of feel like the same is true for for uh, gold investors, right? There's going to be a generational rotation from the folks that are uber skeptical that there could be ever, ever be a digital gold complement to, to those that are a little bit more receptive and, you know, the, the millennial class of investors. And as that younger generation gets wealthier, uh, and as they inherit some of that wealth from their parents or grandparents, it becomes a, a heck of a lot easier to see the allocation shifting. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's like five year tail you know momentum and and, and tailwinds that's um, I think or ten year twenty year uh, tailwinds that that often is underappreciated, especially given the fact that Bitcoin itself has very little supply left um, in terms of its daily issuance, like net new issuance. So you're all you're you're talking about. Um, secondary demand for for these assets, and there is a sizable chunk of the monetary base for Bitcoin that's pretty well spoken for. I mean, y- you and I probably have a certain percentage of our holdings that we're like, yeah, I'm not fucking touching that. 
<laughs> like right. almost like regardless of the number and you know maybe you average out but but i i, I think you know you got to wonder how much is like truly offline now um out of that you know base and 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 when you start thinking about it in, in those terms you think about the 70 million you know folks that that Don't are ultimately into this and um it doesn't have to happen all at once it'll it'll happen i think in these fits and starts just like it always has i think i think it, it has to happen that way technically anyway I think there, there's simply no physical way for it to happen any other way, um, which is fine for now. Uh, but I think at some point, uh, if the shit hits the fan, that's not going to be good enough for a lot of people who, you know, feel like it's their exit visa, right? So um, I don't, I don't know what happens in that. It, it, it would be, I, I hate to say it because it sounds like uh, almost sadomasochistic to say it would be fascinating to see what would happen in that instance because I don't really want us to have to go through that, but. But it would be to, to, to see how society would, would deal with that. Um, okay, I'm going to pick one more, uh, and then we'll talk about some other things. So let's see. i got my list here. Um, stack, sats, and earn crypto. So let's talk about that. What, what do you mean by stack, sats, and earn crypto? To date, the primary method that users uh, have, have acquired Bitcoin and crypto assets with has been by investing, right? So you open up a Coinbase app, you open up an exchange wallet and, and you know, or, or account and, and you set some type of recurring buy or one-time buy and, and, you know, start trading and speculating. I do think that there's something to be said for earning crypto. Uh, and, and one of the easiest ways to invest that's a, a bit of a, a mind sh- uh, shift is via payroll, right? So I, I have a feeling that until there's another big bubble, you're gonna have very few new users that are opening a Coinbase account and making their first purchase or, or setting a recurring buy. But you might be able to add many, many more users with a pretty significant you know, net new inflow if you have better crypto payroll solutions. Um, and I'm shocked that this hasn't taken off yet. And in fact, if, if I had realized it was going to take this long for Coinbase or, you know, some of the other major wallets to, to build out this you know, payroll tool, I would have done it myself, you know, back in 2015, I would have started this, right? Like this is five years ago, I was certain that some of these solutions were going to be available because it just makes so much sense. And you can, you can take points of that as the, uh, you know, Bitcoin payroll processor, and you, you could set the allocations, uh, you know, however you'd like to. It's um, it's embedding with the payroll systems that that you know would, would make this really valuable. So you can set it once as you go through your um, your onboarding uh, at your employer, or set it your annual benefits allocation, and and all of a sudden you can you know accrue maybe a thousand dollars of Bitcoin a year if you put you know uh, one or two percent in, depending on what your income is. Um, so uh, you know I I'm pretty sure that we're going to see those uh, in the next couple of years because how else are you going to onboard new users. Everybody knows Binance, everybody knows Coinbase, um, but you're you're not really changing um, the formula if, if you're still just relying on new users coming in because they're going to start speculating. Um, and I, I, I think that this is as or more important, um, even though we know, rationally speaking, it doesn't matter if the price is 8,000 or 800,000, it, it's really about like what percentage the, the underlying supplier are you purchasing. But people don't really think like that. You know, they, they want to be able to own a full Bitcoin. So one way to do that might be 
to uh, do it gradually through your payroll um, so that you can kind of save up to that milestone. Uh, and this is kind of in keeping with the stack sats meme that um, the, uh, the folks at Lolly uh, have, have, you know, been, been using to, to pretty, uh, pretty good effect. Yep. Yep. So what is out of all of the kind of, let's, let's just summarize on the, 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 the top 10 narratives. Um, is there one that I didn't mention that, that, you're particularly uh, excited about in terms of the the top 10 2020-20 narrative? I, I mean, I don't have them memorized uh, off the top of my head, but I mean, the one that we didn't talk about was, uh, or the one that we did talk about that I think is the most important one is the uh, digital gold gold uh, basket trade, right? So um, you've, so we didn't talk exactly about what I meant in, in you know, that narrative section, but essentially, um, my point is that we should stop trying to pitch Bitcoin as its own thing um, and instead try to latch on to the gold bug narrative. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're an investor in gold, you are, you know, Ray Dalio uh, and, and you're finally investing in gold after decades of writing it off or, or thinking that it's, you know, just an illogical investment to make. Um, you should probably invest in a basket of gold and digital gold, right? Gold for the analog, digital gold for, for kind of the, yeah. the, the new tech savvy users. Um, and those things, when the Iran incidents happened, uh, traded in lockstep uh, pretty surprisingly. So if you are thinking about that as a thesis, well, it, even though there might be a little bit of volatility within that basket, um, you could maybe dampen that volatility and and generate much more significant upside by adding Bitcoin to that basket, because you know versus gold, if that narrative does take place, it can it can only go up, right? It's yeah. it's only two percent right now of the you know g- global gold market cap. So you know, wouldn't you want to own two percent or five percent or ten percent of Bitcoin as part of that basket? Because if it does become a a, a good substitute for for gold, then um, you're going to come out way ahead, uh, even if the you know even if gold you know doesn't perform as wildly as as you think it might uh, with these types of inflationary pressures. Yep, yep, yeah. I mean, I, I've been saying for years that there has to be a point, if we're all right, where the correlation between gold and Bitcoin becomes um, you know clear at a, at, a, at, a, at a from a macro perspective and not just via these kind of micro events that you're. Uh, alluding to like what happened in Iran last week, um, but that hasn't happened yet. Uh, and so, one would think that if if it really does happen, that could be the biggest impetus for pushing those markets significantly higher. I mean, it, it almost becomes a circular discussion, but but um, it just seems like that's the that's the path to to greatness here, right? I, I, yeah, I think the first you know few market cycles, Bitcoin was so small by comparison, and there was so much you know other noise in in what could drive price um, that it didn't really make sense to look. But I, I think from here on out, it, it would be interesting to watch, and and I'd imagine that every subsequent st- uh, cycle, you'll you'll start to see a tighter and tighter correlation until you know they're they're basically trading on on the same level. Um, but you know that that obviously assumes that we're going to go 50x from here, which uh, is is wildly optimistic. But I think something that uh, that that you and I uh, don't think is out of the realm of possibility, uh, even though it may have six years ago when we were first talking about it. 
Yep. Yep. I remember when it, when it hit, you know, 500 and people thought it was, this is, this is ridiculous. Um, that would be obviously a, a disaster of epic proportions now if it got to 500, right? So, all right, mm -hmm. let's, switch, let's switch gears here. Um, so I'm looking at the list here. Let's talk about DeFi, right? So everybody now is super excited about, um, you know, DAI and, and, and DeFi systems and, and crypto lending. And where do you come out on one of your investments, uh, 20 bits of investment advice list uh, in your document was ETH uh, colon DeFi reserve parentheses versus ICO reserve. So what does that mean and, and where do you come out on kind of the state of DeFi and where it's going? Uh, well, the, the, just for clarity, so I don't get in trouble uh, with our team, that, I think that section was 20 bits of investment advice in parentheses, it said not investment advice. Okay, so let's just, let's, just be, let, let's just be clear about the, the, the witticism here so I don't get in trouble. Um, I think, uh, you know, 2017, I'd argue that rally was largely at the back of ETH um, and it wasn't because ETH was really good at powering smart contracts. It was because it turned into the reserve currency for the ICO boom. Uh, and you needed ETH in order to pile into some of these speculative investments. And then you'd recycle them when one popped and, you know, you'd, you'd kind of move on to the next coin. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, what's interesting is, you know, the bubble more or less popped in late, uh, in, in kind of early 2018. And around the same time, uh, you know, towards the end of, of 2018, you had Maker really coming into its own. And, and basically last year was the year of Maker um, as a, a project in terms of the value that was locked in, in uh, collateralized debt positions, in terms of the amount of die that was issued. And um, I think uh, that narrative really started to, you know, take off and, and the total value of, of, you know, ETH locked in that system uh, started to take off. So, uh, it took the place of ICOs at least a little bit uh, in terms of kind of proving why you would need ETH as a, a kind of base asset for um, uh, for for running smart contract applications instead of just using it for gas, for instance. Um, and I think that's healthy, right? I I, I think that uh, the Ethereum community in general would would probably do just fine if they focused on being a global sensor resistant settlement layer for new financial applications. Uh, I don't think you need, you know, virtual cats and, you know, timestamping services and, and other uh, non-essential, you know, uh, arguably important, but but certainly non-essential for that blockchain uh, solutions to, um, uh, you know, to exist on, on the same chain. I, I think that ultimately, uh, you know, my interest in Ethereum started when it became clear that people were thinking about it as money, full stop. So there's three assets that I hold right now. It's, it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Zcash mm -hmm. for very different reasons. Um, and they're all monetary assets uh, and, and that's it, right? I, I don't think about really anything else right now as being you know, properly valued uh, just because we're still in the infrastructure phase and no one's using any of this shit anyway. They could, I'm sure there will be killer apps that emerge soon, but the closest that we have are those that are, are you know, built on top of Ethereum um, in the DeFi stack today. Do you have a theory as to what takes DeFi more into the mainstream uh, in the traditional banking sense? Or do you see them as kind of just different worlds, whereas what we're calling DeFi right now services crypto? Or is there some overlap at some point? I think, 
It, it's hard for me to imagine a scenario where DeFi is interesting for folks outside of crypto um, this year. It, it, you're still talking about very small numbers. Uh, it's hard to use. Uh, the tax consequences are not well understood. Well, not widely understood. They're, they should be well understood because uh, a lot of these DeFi applications give you the, the worst possible tax consequences you can think of, particularly around you know staking rewards, which... Um, are treated like cash dividends, uh, but function like stock dividends. So, about the worst trade that you can make if if you're trying to produce a, you know an income stream from uh, quote unquote staking yield, which is a good marketing term, but not really sensible otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I do think that you know some of the some of what's getting built, it's it, it's not it necessarily. Sh- it doesn't need to be logical uh, as long as people are tinkering with it and you're kind of building the liquidity in the system and, and, and breaking things. Um, I th- honestly, I, f- I feel like that's okay for a while. And, and the folks that are going to use these systems, they, they might not be paying taxes on it because they're, you know, they're, they're trying to stay off the grid, <laughs> right. Or, uh, and, you know, you can argue, you know, what kind of uh, precedence that sets, but uh, I, I, or, or what type of you know, narratives we'd have to bat back uh, if that proved true and, and you could you know, measure the, the impact of that. But in reality, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's no different than you know, what happened with Silk Road and, and Satoshi Dice and, and all the other you know, early Bitcoin applications. So um, I think you'll get into a scenario where uh, people continue to dabble. The, the folks that are actually making money versus just experimenting um, will you know hopefully pay their taxes, and that that'll be the funds that are trying to arbitrage into these things. Um, and then everybody else, you know, maybe they report something, maybe they don't, because it's just you know they view it as de minimis. But um, that kind of mass of users should be enough to at least get through some of the experimentation phase until something sticks. Mm-hmm. You um, you wrote uh, today that uh, income share agreements could be uh, a killer use case for. Uh, cryptocurrencies and and smart contracts. What what did mm-hmm. you mean by that? What what are income share agreements, and why are you so potentially bullish on them? Uh, ISAs basically just refer to your ability to securitize an income stream or a portion of your income stream. Um, Lambda School has done this uh, with their retraining programs, where their students don't pay anything in the way of tuition, but then they do pay. I think seventeen percent of their post-graduation um, salary for a fixed period of time or until they hit a certain payback cap. Mm-hmm. And what it does is um, it eliminates some of the risk for the borrower um, and the lender's happy because you can still come out net ahead if you're good at who you're you're extending you know, these ISAs to. Um, the classical argument was, well, if you create like an ISA, then people don't have the same incentives to work hard. That's not really true because it's basically like a spin on the, oh, if you tax me at 50% versus 35%, I'm not going to work that hard. That doesn't actually ever happen in practice. Um, but uh, what, what's unique about uh, the news with, uh, with, with Spencer Dinwiddie, who's the, the Brooklyn Nets guard, who's really um, started this, uh, this meme again around tokenized earnings and, and tokenized contracts, um, is it's, it looks like a toy and, and it actually borrows, you know, from historical legacy financial system innovations around, uh, securitizing entertainers, income streams that, that happen with 
David Bowie when they called them Bowie bonds. And then it happened with a company called Fantex, um, which stood for Fantasy Exchange uh, that tokenized the contracts of like Arian Foster, Vernon Davis, a few other NFL players. Um, but what, what's unique is, A, you're talking about, I think, the right time, right? 10 years ago, 20 years ago is probably too early for that. Now, um, given you know, social media and, and you know, how digital the experience is, even when you go to a concert or when you go to a game, it seems like the fans would be more interested in, in trading for a player uh, or ownership in a player uh, or, or one of his income streams if, um, if it's much more liquid uh, and, and gameable. If you try to do that using something that was trading you know, via the SEC, there's not a lot of sex appeal in that, right? But as soon as you start like tokenizing securities and adding it to, you know, Robinhood and uh, and and Square and and any of the other wallets that might ultimately support some of these assets, um, now it it's it's a little bit more fan friendly and it 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 seems like it um, it could have you know staying power. Um, that that goes back to my like Roadster example too, right? In the, in the grand scheme of things, does it matter that like one NBA player is like the eighth ranked point guard? in the league is, is tokenizing his contract. Of course not. Uh, but it's going to get headlines. Um, and I think more players will end up doing it. And if more players end up doing it, the more entertainers will end up doing it. If more entertainers end up doing it, then, you know, brand personalities on YouTube uh, will start doing it. And then upstart brands will start doing it so that their fans that were with them early and part of their early click can, you know, kind of tag along for the ride if they, if they make it big. So you can see this kind of gradually um, taking, uh, taking flights uh, across a couple of different realms, one being, you know, education refinancing, another being kind of brand tokens and personalities. And that's probably most important because, you know, really the world that we're moving to is is a gig, gig economy where people are going to want some type of income security, um, but the rewards will, will end up being very, very lumpy. Um, so I, I think that this is a huge precedent and, yeah. and it's nice because it's backed by earnings. It's not backed by error. Yeah. So, so, so thinking about uh, this guy from the Nets, the Brooklyn Nets, Spencer Dinwiddie, I think is how you say his name. Mm -hmm. um, uh, good player. I mean, like you said, average player uh, by NBA standards. Um, above, above average. Yeah, above but average. He's, he, but he's, 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 you know, he's, he's okay, not. But, but my point is, is that all NBA. Uh, there was precedent for this in, the, in, the, in kind of the non-digital world with what, what Bowie did, which you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. That never went anywhere. I mean, there was never... Um, it was never followed on with other musicians doing the same thing. And I would venture a guess that most musicians didn't understand what the hell he was doing in the first place. And they probably still don't. Uh, well, that's because that's because they packaged and sold it to other financial investors. Yeah. I understand. Don't give a fuck, right? the, the financial investors want to make money. I think what's well, who different else are you now, package it to? who else are you going to package it to? So, so I get that. I agree with that. But my point is, is that why, why would, I, I think what, what he did is very interesting. I'm amazed that he did it. Um, it's much easier when you're making that much money to just basically give it to Goldman, let them manage it and go about your day and have, mm -hmm. fun. And, you know, they all basically do their venture investing now and have a great time out, out competing each other. They compete in venture to, to one up each other, just like they do on the court. It's fun. It's, it's fun to watch. Why would he bother doing this knowing that it's more work, uh, more risk, you know, ether contracts have broken, Ethereum contracts have broken in the past. It seems like on the surface, you can almost make the case there's more downside than upside here. Well, I mean, he's still getting the cash up front, right? If he wants to speculate on Ethereum or, or a crypto asset, it's no different from him, you know, buying a chain of restaurants, uh, right? You know, or, or, or whatever whatever your financial advisor is going to recommend. Yeah. And, and the important thing is it's not the whole income stream, right? 
when Fantex um, was still around, this is, you know, five years ago, and they went under, I, I don't uh, know the exact story of, of how it all went down, but um, they had, you know, half a dozen uh, player contracts that they securitized. Mm-hmm. The issue was they never had like a big star, right? And, and also the dollars were, were, were quite a bit lower. Um, and the predictability was lower because you're talking about NFL players versus NBA players or MLB players. Um, obviously, you know, NFL careers are, you know, on average three years. So some of these players like Arian Foster, they, they tokenized his contract. He blew out his knee the next preseason, mm-hmm. you know, so <laughs> that can still happen in any sport. But the thinking is that um, you could ultimately grow with the player, right? So if you get a young player uh, like, like Dinwiddie and, um, and you're able to kind of trade this token over time and kind of parlay this. So it almost becomes like a futures market on what you think the next contract will be. Well, that's great for the player. That's great for the fans. That's, you know, kind of good for, for helping set price for contracts in the NBA, right? It, it, it's almost like a prediction market of sorts at scale, right? Maybe this one just kind of is an anomaly for right now. Um, but I think the important thing is it, it, it helps uh, set the precedent. You kind of pave the way for others and, look, he's going to make that back tenfold just by being a brand ambassador for whichever platforms get built out. So, you know, uh, there, there's always, you know, uh, little benefits to doing these things that are quote unquote free, um, particularly in an emerging market where, where people are so competitive about getting their allocations. He's going to get into every deal that he wants to, um, with this new, you know, basically $13 million, you know, personal account that he can use for angel investing. Right, right, right. So, so just coming back to this, um, income share agreement concept in, in, in general, how do you enforce that, right? So so if you basically have this, um, I, I guess you basically enter into this debt agreement with, in the case like this Lambda school you mentioned, if you're, it, does tokenizing that represent any benefit to enforcement in some way? Uh, and, you know, if, if the person is actually earning money in the kind of traditional physical world, how does that translate back into a smart contract in the digital world? that represents a benefit for kind of tokenizing your right to future earnings. Yeah, I, I think the the token element uh, should ostensibly help with uh, faster resale, right? So, so you know, more more liquid trading of these ISAs. Um, so, so in other words, they, they, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily solve. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't necessarily solve the enforcement mechanism, but but I think that's why you need things like athletic contracts um, and, you know, uh, tuition payment plans, um, because there is going to be some kind of real world uh, financial contracts that that you ultimately need to um, satisfy uh, those obligations. And, you know, with, with Lambda School, it's easy because they're helping place the candidates so they know what they're making. Um, and by and large, you know, the, the candidates that they are retraining are getting, you know, 50, 75, 100% increases or more in their salary versus what they were getting beforehand. So there, there's, there's quite a bit of goodwill. Um, on the, you know, kind of athletic contract side, um, it's, it's about fan engagement and it's about, you know, being able to get money up front and, and ultimately, you know, some, most of these contracts are guaranteed, right? So uh, you're, you're not taking that much incremental risk as a fan um, to, to purchase this. I don't know that it works if you're trying to, you know, just take some, guy off the street with a suit and tie and say, okay, you know, we're going to rank your resume and then say you're worth X amounts. Um, but then you, we got to chase you throughout like your employment, you know, next five employers to, to actually collect on that. Um, that's, you know, somewhat dystopian, but 
at the same time, you can see a, a future where that becomes easier if payroll systems, for instance, can talk to each other, right? Or if you have a, a you know global identity that, that you can permission out um, and want to access this parallel you know financial system and credit system. So you know th- those are going to happen. It's where the early use case is going to going to emerge and and how could those be interesting? How can those toys ultimately lead to to something that is a little bit more broadly relevant? Yep. Yep. So I, I'm fascinated by this topic. I, I this is one of the things that we have to come back to. Uh, I thought about doing one, by the way, Bill. Did you you know this? I, I think yeah, I, I thought we talked about. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, after I left uh, CoinDesk before I started Masari, I was talking about doing an ISA because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I wanted to keep getting paid that summer because everybody else was making right. fucking money for nothing. So I figured, why not? <laughs> okay, it's kind of worse than any other ICO that you probably were complaining about for for eight and, years anyway. So and and, and the, um, the and only reason I more than you probably trust a lot of those founders, right? So yeah, exactly, right. And but the only reason I didn't do it is because there wasn't security token apparatus in place, and one of the things that was missing from the security token realm was some type of standardized disclosures and some way to enforce those contracts. How do you even pipe that information in? Um, and so one thing led to another and, you know, we built a, a company focused on disclosures. Okay. So once so, we've gotten that right, then I'll go back and I'll sell a portion of my soul. Okay. I, I may need that, you know, cause you never know. I mean, uh, one, who knows what happens one board being to the next, right? I may need to tokenize the second half of my, my, my life soon. So I'm going to, uh, ride your coattails to figure that out. So, so I think Let's that's something else I got to ask. I, I, I think I saw you tweet something. Or somebody pointed out to me that you tweeted something which might allude to uh, either Masari or or Ryan Selkis himself doing something related to creating some type of new DAO. Uh, mm-hmm. What is this? What's going on here? When we started Masari, we knew that we wanted to build a universal disclosures registry that would mirror the role that Edgar has in the traditional equity markets. And one way, one challenge of doing that is there's no global regulator. So there's no global self-regulator. And that means that there's no global enforcement mechanism to browbeat these teams into doing some type of common sense disclosures. So a hack that we thought of initially was, well, maybe we could create a token curated registry where you basically have projects put stake in the system. And then if they lie or they fail to disclose some you know, material bit of information, they can get slashed and those rewards go to whistleblowers or kind of, you know, mini auditors of sorts. Uh, and then, you know, kind of the, the market just fell out uh, or the, the bottom of the market fell out. And, um, and people, you know, we realized pretty quickly people trusted me and Masari more than they did this emerging token concept called the token curator registry. Um, and then late last year, we started to see more DAO projects um, come to market, which are, are, are very, very similar um, to the TCR concept that we initially laid out. The benefit is there's no affinity token, right? So there's no Masari token that we're shilling as part of this. It's just basically a, a simple multi-party escrow system um, and, and you know, governance system to allocate you know, where this pool of funds goes. So um, the DAO that we have in mind would you know, hopefully have token projects, major exchanges, and, and other regulated entities uh, contributing to this pool of capital and then nominating both the projects that they want covered, as well as the auditors, right? So who's going to verify this information? Who's going to act as an arm's length, big four-esque um, verifier of, of you know, basic inf- project information so that, so that becomes you know, kind of the Oracle. garbage and garbage out project. That becomes like the Oracle, if you will, into those contracts, I guess, at some point, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll take a phased approach to this, just like we we you know done previously. But um, the from day one, you know, the, the company's two years old, right? So, so basically, since early 2018, we knew that we wanted to decentralize this because the information that we are collecting and verifying should be table stakes to any functional, you know, global market for for these assets. Um, like who's your team? How does the token work? You know, where, how do the, how do the governance systems work? What are the token economics? What's the supply distribution? Like that's like front of the S1 type of information in the public market. So, so we never thought about that as proprietary. Instead, we thought if we can build a network around this and we can get the basics done right, then we can kind of gradually decentralize that, put all the data into creative commons. And then, you know, we'll make money based on the tools and services that we provide around that. Um, but by the way, so can some of our competitors, at least we'll all be talking about the same, uh, data in the same way. So you get, um, instead of, you know, 20 different versions of the same 10 K you have one universal version and, and, you know, we'll let the chips fall where they may from a competitive standpoint, because I know that we're going to be able to build interesting things beyond that. Yeah. So, so how does Masari in theory make money in this, in this model, this down model? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so right now, you know, we're, we're charging an annual license fee directly to the teams that are working with us on the registry. Um, as we make this transition, those teams should contribute those same revenues uh, to the DAO. Um, and then the other stakeholders in the DAO will ultimately pick um, the verifiers, right? So if the projects want us to continue, you know, uh, representing them almost like uh, you, you pick KPMG or Deloitte or E&Y over each other, um, then that's fine. But they also have the option to maybe allocate some to us and some to another third party. Uh, same same is true for the assets that are not currently on the registry, right? If, if some of the major exchanges contribute uh, slugs of capital to this DAO, then uh, they might say, okay, we want to split, you know, 25% of the assets that we've committed. We want Masari doing the work on these, you know, 10 assets. And then we want, you know, ABC company, uh, serving as as the you know verifier for these five projects ba- based out of Asia, uh, where where the team there has a, a closer relationship, so we kind of trust that they're going to get you know higher fidelity information. Um, you know, not that we think that's true. We think we can be competitive anywhere, but but I think it's 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 almost healthy for us to have a couple of legitimate competitors um, because then the the likelihood that we have a, a greater pool of assets um, with some real financial skin in the game from these projects increases uh, pretty significantly. My understanding is, is you're kind of midterm bearish on on most altcoin projects, right? You, you, you see a lot of these going to zero, which mitigates the need for lots of disclosures, right? Uh, if something doesn't exist or goes to zero, you don't need disclosures. So, so where do you see the biggest application for this over time? Tokenization of what, what kind of protocols, what kind of projects would need these disclosures? Where is this going to add the most value? Well, I mean, if the assets are on their way to zero, all the more reason that there's disclosures because you're going to have quite a bit of legal activity around that. Um, so, you know, and, and by the way, you know, I, I expect most of these early protocols to fail and fall by the wayside. And that's fine, right? That's the nature of an early stage market. Um, but it's also the reason that we stayed intentionally out of the way of, of actually rating assets. Um, so we're, we're all about transparency ratings versus quality ratings. Um First of all, because it is early and we don't we don't know better than anybody else um, whether something's going to make it, um, and uh, and some of the crazier you know low probability experiments might end up being some of the killer apps in, in the ecosystem. So um, I think 
over time, you will have some monetary assets, you'll have some, you know, work tokens and, and kind of digital resource tokens around file storage and, you know, bandwidth and, and the like. Um, and then you'll have other synthetic securities that are issued on chain. So whether that's a, an ISA, whether that's a derivative, whether that's, um, you know, a, a shadow security uh, that's mimicking the returns of the S&P for an investor in India that doesn't otherwise have access to the stock market. I think, um, you know, those are, are some of the most interesting assets that we'll see um, kind of down the line. But, you know, we're focused on building this infrastructure right now because, uh, you know, we like to joke Bloomberg had junk bonds as the backbone of their business. We have shit coins. Right. So um, I say that with love. Right. Because, you know, that that is our customer base. And, and I think they all get it. Right. You know, we were right. No one really knows what they're doing yet because there's no users except for Bitcoin and maybe Ethereum. Um, so everybody else kind of recognizes that because we're in this experimental phase, um, it's um, it's, you know, in some cases it's guilty until proven innocent. But at the same time, you, you want to allow for this experimentation to take place in good faith. And um, and make sure that that people are able to do this without, uh, you know, running afoul of of existing securities law or or you know hurting people in the process unintentionally. Yep. Okay. So so by the way, so it sounds like you could almost replace the word token with smart contract in the context of what you're talking about, because if in theory you're talking about disclosure. Yeah, there, 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 there is. Yeah. I mean, there there is no token, right? I mean, we're talking about you know a DAO. I mean, I guess it's, it's technically a coordinating token, right? So so you have you know voting rights, but it's not it it is it, not necessarily designed to have its own value. Yeah. Uh, it's, but, but what I meant was a little bit different. So you're not actually talking about like rate uh, disclosures around specific tokens. It's it could be disclosures around specific types of smart contracts or specific smart contracts or anything that would be happening in any type of ERC based X ERC dash X contract mm -hmm. effectively. Yeah. Hypothetically, but I think the, the strong bias that we'd have is around actual tokens because there's some monetary value there. Okay. What, whether you believe in what backs that value or you think it's smoke and mirrors is, is another story. But um, I think orienting around the assets themselves is, is what really matters because you can't, you can't invest directly in a smart contract. Like you technically you do, but really you're investing in the actual ERC twenty right. set. So, so that was a perfect segue to my last question slash comment, which was I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the mother of all Selkis pet peeves, of course, which is the Ripple XRP uh, protocol slash token. And you know you've written extensively on your feelings on their transparency or or lack thereof. You mentioned it again in your 2020 comments. What is your, you know, you've mentioned that you've been surprised, uh, dumbfounded maybe at the staying power of both Ripple, the company and XRP, the, the token. Um, what, where is your current thinking on, you know, the company, the, the protocol, its staying power? Uh, are they transparent? Are they not transparent? Where's this all going? Well, I think, I think the, uh, Ripple, the company, has built one of the more impressive uh, tech stacks and and has much uh, closer to product market fit than than ninety nine percent of other projects that are, are in crypto. Um, the issue has always been, you know, I've I've kind of I've called them like the Jekyll and Hyde of of crypto, right? So on the one hand, you've got Doctor Jekyll, who's 
uh, you know, trying to disintermediate SWIFT and they're working with all these banks and they've got this, you know, phenomenal team and bench of board and advisory, you know, members. And, um, and, and, you know, they are creating interesting tech, solving a real problem. And they were very early as pioneers in the industry. And then there's Mr. Hyde, which is the one that comes out with these bullshit transparency reports where they kind of obfuscate, you know, how funds are actually flowing and, and they're um, not quite uh, transparent about the actual funding model for the company, which is essentially just a continuous fundraise. Um, but it's treated as revenue, right? Because uh, the party line is that they just stumbled across this 80% of XRP that hit their balance sheet. Mm-hmm. And it was a found asset like oil versus, you know, being you know, sold as a security. Um, and I don't really care about the securities law aspect of it. What, what, what we do care about is uh, whether the assets that are currently outstanding are truly circulating or whether they're encumbered in some way, shape or form, because if it's the latter and they're a sizable portion are encumbered, then two things happen. One, they're understating the amount of sell side pressure from insiders that will happen over the course of time. And this has played out over the course of the last 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, their market cap is overstated, which means that any time that there's a basket weighted index, it's going to overweight XRP, even though a good chunk of that XRP is, is held um, either in escrow by Ripple um, or is you know, currently held by one of the insiders that's subject to some structured reselling agreement. Um, so you know, when we started to look into this, it was more about um, that issue of whether you know, that's at all sensible <laughs> as, as a, a way to report on the supply. But I'll tell you right now, I mean, I still think that um, Ripple could, could end up doing very well if the banks... Uh, you know, take the bait and uh, are offered sweetheart deals to buy some of these, you know, assets for pennies on the dollar or, you know, 50 cents on the dollar in return for actually partnering uh, very publicly with Ripple. So it's, it's, it's like fake it till you make it coin almost. Um, but, uh, but, but what's interesting is the, the revenue model and, you know, the, what the company actually delivers are, are two very, very different things. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible, uh, you know, how, how much staying power that that coin has had. I mean, given that none of the, I mean, they've been masterful at signing up banks, but it doesn't seem like any of them are actually doing anything meaningful with XRP yet. Uh, I don't think much of many of them are doing much transaction volume at all with the software yet, but certainly none have been very vocal about using the token. And yet it's, as Ripple continues to sell it to, to fund the business, it, doesn't seem to have an impact on the price. It's 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 it, it moves down, but so does the broader crypto market, right? Or the the broader market. So, I I, um, I kind of share your 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 lack of understanding. I mean, I'm happy for them. I mean, it allows them to fund their business, and people who are buying and selling it don't seem to complain. So, um, it's astounding. Um, more power to them. Okay, so what's your most unpopular opinion as it relates to? Actually, what's your most popular, unpopular opinion, period? Ryan Felder, what's your most unpopular opinion? Uh, I don't know. I, have, I guess I have so many. What's <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I Honestly, I, 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 don't, I don't really know what's popular and unpopular anymore. I, don't, I never really tweet what that. What do you get the most grief for online? What do I get the most grief for online? Um, I'd say there's there's maybe a, a, a couple things. So um, 
Well, one that's easy, yeah, but I don't really believe uh, is like that Craig Wright is part of Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, I, the, the, the thing is like, I kind of have a hunch that he was involved very early, but I don't know if he's actually Satoshi and I hope he's not. But more importantly, I really just don't care. So like, but I, I've said that in the past and like, I'm an enabler and a scumbag and, you know, <laughs> I'm like part of the problem because I think that someone who was... Um, very legitimately, and maybe the top hundred people that had ever heard of Bitcoin and 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 started poking around, like I don't even think that anybody debates that at this point. Um, there is, by definition, a one percent chance if he was part of that early crowd that maybe he he was involved in some way, shape, or form. So that one's definitely unpopular. Oh, I know. Uh, so th this is actually pretty easy. I was just trying to put my finger on it. Um, I don't believe that the $21 million, uh, 21 million Bitcoin cap is hard for Bitcoin. I think it's, it's, uh, kind of hard, uh, but really you could find that in four or five, six years as the inflation rate dips below 1%. It becomes dangerous to rely on the fee model for Bitcoin because it's too lumpy, or for whatever reason, it doesn't work or doesn't scale. And the market collectively decides that, well, as long as we are below the annual inflation rate of the gold supply, you know that's that's good enough, and it's it's you know uh, it, it is controllable enough where you can't just inflate it because um, you know Bitcoin uh, is only competitive insofar as it's more deflationary than its fiat alternatives and, and kind of existing alternatives. So it could end up being, you know, uh, a better setup, quite frankly, to, to have, you know, 1% of the money supply turn over and, um, and, you know, keep that at a, a steady state inflation rate long-term. That's definitely unpopular and it should be because it's, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to soften that narrative until you absolutely have to. But again, this is, this is something where, I just think it's going to happen. I don't really care because I'm not going to push one way or the other. But the, um, I think the market is going to make that decision, you know, for us in five years or whenever it is. Yep, I would say that's definitely an unpopular opinion. Um, but uh, you know, hey, might be easier to get that done than having bigger blocks. So you never know. Uh, <laughs> that is true. All right. Bet on that. Um, well, I always like to, to end the podcast by seeing who I could piss off. So I, I think we've probably managed to piss off a few people. So we should probably stop there. Uh, super interesting conversation. A lot of things. That's just everybody off. Yeah, there you go. It's not interesting unless somebody's aggravated. So so uh, the good news is, is we got a lot to document to come back to in a year. Uh, mm -hmm. Basically, uh, you know, see where we're at and see what we got right, what we got wrong. And, and um, you know, obviously we'll, we'll be talking along the way, but uh, I look forward to uh, doing this in, in January of 2021 and, and uh, assessing what we got right, what we got wrong. So uh, Ryan Selkis from Masari. Uh, it's Masari.com, M-E-S-S-A-R-I.com. Did I get that right? Dot, dot .io. Yeah. Dot .io, I apologize. Okay, Masari.io. Uh, we're going to get the .com at some point, but we're, okay. we're, just, we're, we're, we're too frugal. So we'll, we'll do it like right before our next fundraise, before anybody knows that we have money. Gotcha. Well, we'll link on it from Aber.com anyway. So... Uh, we, this, this email goes out to hundreds of thousands of people. They'll see mis link to Masari.io, uh, uh, two bit idiot on, uh, Twitter, my favorite Twitter handle besides my own, um, and great newsletter every day. So you can get all of that at Masari.io and, uh, Ryan, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us on money 3.0. We, we really enjoyed having you here. Thanks for having me. It's always fun, man.
All right. Well, I'm going to uh, call it there uh, to wrap. And uh, thanks for joining us, everyone. Take care. Thanks again for listening to the Abramani 3.0 show. We hope you liked this episode as much as we did. If so, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and download the Abra app wherever you get your apps. Thanks again.